Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast highlighting academic and policy-oriented international research on democracy and human development. Global Stage is a production of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Global Stage podcast. I am Josephine Lechartre. I am a PhD candidate in Peace Studies and Political Science here at the University of Notre Dame. And today I'm welcoming Dr. Olukunle Owalabi, who is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Villanova University. At Villanova University, Dr. Owalabi teaches courses on comparative politics, African politics, comparative democratization, and the developmental legacies of colonialism. His research examines the developmental legacies of forced settlement and colonial occupation in the global south and has been published in comparative politics. Dr. Wallaby earned his PhD in political science from the University of Notre Dame in 2012, and he also holds an MPhil in Latin American studies with distinction from Oxford University. Dr. Wallaby is also a longtime member of the Kellogg community, as he was a former Kellogg Institute graduate student. In 2008 and 2009, he benefited from a dissertation year fellowship, and he was also a visiting fellow at the Institute in spring 2016. Dr. Owalabi is with us today as he's back at Notre Dame to launch his book, Ruling Emancipated Slaves and Indigenous Subjects, The Divergent Legacies of Forced Settlement and Colonial Occupation in the Global South, which was recently published by Oxford University Press in spring 2023. Welcome back, Kunle. It's good to have you today. Thank you so much. So I wanted to go ahead and ask you first question about your research and how you came to develop this research agenda. So your research examines the developmental legacies of forced settlement and colonial occupation in the global south. And I wanted to know if you could tell us more about how you came to be interested in those topics and how your experience at the Kellogg Institute at Notre Dame helped you enhance this scholarship. Thank you so much, Josephine, for the introduction and the question. I guess my original interest in this topic stemmed quite heavily from the combination of childhood experiences and family background. So my parents grew up under British colonial rule in different parts of the world. My father in Nigeria and my mom in Trinidad in the Caribbean. And they both moved to Canada for university studies in the mid-1960s. So my siblings and I were all born in Canada. But when I was four, we moved to Nigeria, where my father and one of his Nigerian childhood friends established a medical hospital in a town called Elisha, which is in southwestern Nigeria, about five hours' drive north and east off Lagos, which is the capital city, was the capital city of the country at the time. And so a lot of my early childhood memories and political memories and how I came to understand the world was quite heavily impacted by that experience. There were a number of different political and developmental challenges going on in Nigeria at the time, some of which I talk about in the book. So like my first political memory was actually a military coup that happened in Nigeria following a disputed election on New Year's Eve of 1983 to 84. And I have pretty vivid memories of what it was like to live under military rule and some of the economic and developmental challenges that resulted from the debt crises of the 1980s and structural adjustment and currency devaluations. 
And things that I think most North American scholars are familiar with because of having read about them as opposed to having experienced them personally, mm -hmm. right? So, however, the summer that I turned seven, we spent a month in Trinidad with my mom's family and I got to see a different kind of post-colonial legacy in the sense that this was a country that gained independence from Britain around the same time as Nigeria. But it seemed to be performing better on a bunch of different kinds of metrics of development. So just to give examples, you could drink tap water in Trinidad. Mm -hmm. You had to boil the water in Nigeria. We had to take anti-malarial medication in Nigeria and we would get sick with malaria once or twice a year. In Trinidad, malaria had been eradicated in the 50s or maybe early 60s, and you didn't need to take anti-malarial meds. There were frequent power cuts in Nigeria. There weren't in Trinidad. And I think most importantly for me, the day we were supposed to travel back to Nigeria at the end of that summer, we were sitting around the breakfast table at my grandmother's house listening to the news and there was a part of me that was wishing there was some way to extend the <laughs> summer because it was so fun. And the first news item that broke was that there was another coup in Nigeria, I think by this point the fourth or fifth in the country's history, and that borders would be closed indefinitely. And so we couldn't go home for a few more days. We ended up being stuck in Amsterdam for a few days until they reopened the airports and borders. And so all of this kind of had a profound impact on what I understood of the world and particularly the range of post-colonial possibilities and outcomes in the global south. So when we moved back to Canada and then I got older, so going to high school and then doing my undergraduate degree in Canada and a graduate degrees in Britain first and then the United States, a lot of what I was learning and reading about legacies of colonialism, development, democratization, didn't make sense for understanding both Trinidad and mm -hmm. Nigeria's post-colonial situations. I could see snippets of truth and ways in which arguments made partial sense, but this development gap and some of the differences between Caribbean outcomes and African outcomes hadn't really been explored at that point in time. So when I started my PhD at Notre Dame, in the very first semester, I took a course with Michael Coppage on democratization. And it was in that class where we were reading lots of different theories of mm -hmm. democracy. And so I wrote a paper for that course where I kind of traced the very different legacies of British rule in Jamaica and the Caribbean and Sierra Leone in West Africa. Much later, that turned into the beginnings of what is chapter five of my book. Mm -hmm. So the Kellogg Institute and Notre Dame were hugely instrumental in the sense that the Kellogg Institute, but also the Nanavik Institute here, provided a number of different research grants and fellowships that allowed me to pursue some pretty in-depth archival and library research in four or five different countries mm -hmm. while I was doing my PhD here. And quite a few of the courses that I subsequently took and conference papers that I wrote and presented as a graduate student were also quite heavily shaped by the research priorities of the Kellogg Institute. Now, when I started at Notre Dame back in 2004, the institute was still primarily centered around 
Latin America and questions of democratization. So I was sort of here at the time when the Institute was beginning to branch out more into questions of human development. Mm -hmm. And more and more people were coming in who were doing research on Africa or South Asia or Southeast Asia and other parts of the global South. So it was a really meaningful and impactful opportunity for me to kind of be here at that mm -hmm. time when the Institute was going through that phase in its growth and development. And so all of that kind of shaped quite profoundly the beginnings of the research that ended up contributing to this new book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is something I really wanted to also point out is that the book is really built on very rich and very dense archive evidence that was collected at different sites everywhere. And so this book, Ruling Emancipated Subjects, so it was recently published at Oxford University Press. And building on this anecdote that you told us about your childhood mm -hmm. and, and noticing those very widely different development outcomes in, mm -hmm. in Trinidad and in Nigeria, you decided to offer a new theory of the colonial legacies mm -hmm. on developmental outcomes in post-colonial countries. Mm -hmm. So, and in particular, you draw this difference between forced settlement mm -hmm. countries and mm -hmm. colonial occupation countries. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us more about those two situations, what it meant for people mm -hmm. to live under these, these different colonial regimes, mm -hmm. and also where you would situate uh, Trinidad and Nigeria in those two models? Sure, yeah, no, thank you. That's a fantastic question. So forced settlement is the term that I use to describe the pattern of colonialism where European colonists establish agricultural plantations, usually to produce crops like sugar, coffee, cocoa, mm -hmm. etc. And for a variety of reasons, there is no indigenous population or white settler population that they can compel to work in these spaces. And so they end up importing large numbers of enslaved Africans, right? And so this actually begins in the mid-1400s mm -hmm. in some of the Creole African islands that are just off the mainland. So spaces like Cabo Verde or Cape Verde off the coast of Senegal, Saint Tome and Principe, these are Portuguese mm -hmm. colonies kind of close to Gabon and Equatorial Guinea that are very close to the African mainland. This is where this process begins. And when the transatlantic slave trade starts in the 15th century, it's really on a very small scale involving small numbers of people. And it's concentrated in these little islands off the coast of Africa uh, toward Iberian Europe, what is mm -hmm. now Spain and Portugal. However... In the middle of the 17th century, the British and the Dutch and the French get involved in this, and British and Dutch capital in particular, and the French get in on this a bit later, is used to transform this into a huge global operation. So banks and stock markets and insurance companies are used to just finance the mass kind of movement of enslaved Africans into tropical parts of the New World. And the heyday of this is, is the 18th century, the late 17th and 18th century. So that's forced settlement. So you say those African islands, would that also be the Caribbean? Absolutely. Islands? So it starts in the African Creole islands. It goes next to Brazil, northeastern okay. Brazil. Mm -hmm. 
which was under, for a little while, Dutch occupation, and that's the Dutch connection. And then from there, it spreads to the Caribbean and then further north into the southern part of what's now the U.S. and the coastal parts of what is now Latin American countries like Think Panama or Venezuela or Colombia, etc., right? Thank you. So this goes on until the turn of the 19th century when there's a bunch of different revolutions, and we can talk about that later if you want to follow up on it, that result in the abolition first of the slave trade Mm -hmm. starting around 1807 and a bit later slavery itself in the Americas, right? So that's one type of colonization. When this is wrapping up, there's a second wave of colonial expansion that really takes off in about the 1850s, and it starts in spaces like British India, but also Algeria and South Africa, from there to the rest of the African continent. So in these spaces, right, you have large indigenous populations that predate European colonial expansion, and they're able to survive the colonial encounter, partly because their populations are numerous and they have more disease resistance to European diseases like smallpox, And because of trade links, they also have, at least until the time of the Industrial Revolution, access to the same kinds of weapons and transportation technology as Europeans, right? So they're able to provide some resistance. Precisely. So those populations resist against colonial expansion. But the Industrial Revolution is a game changer because once Europe industrializes, European countries have medicines that allow them to survive diseases like malaria and smallpox, right? They have machine guns that they can use to defeat armies, larger armies in Africa and parts of Asia, right? They have technology like railways and steamboats that provide much faster transportation, and they have new communication technology, so things like telegrams that allow them to communicate same day or next day to report what's happening in faraway spaces. And this is what allows the massive colonial land grab that happens in the final third of the 19th century leading up until World War I. So these are the areas that I call colonies of occupation Mm -hmm. because what's happening here is that rather than bringing in a labor force from somewhere else to work on plantations, Europeans are increasing their control over indigenous populations and lands and resources, right? So that's what I call colonial occupation. And on the surface, it seems like both of these models of colonial domination are repressive and bad, and they are. However, what I'm arguing in the book is that the process of abolishing first the slave trade and then slavery itself initiates a process of reform legal and administrative reform that expands the legal rights and also increases the political agency of emancipated Afro-descendant populations in the forced settlement colonies, whereas Europeans use legal and extra-legal means to control and dominate indigenous populations and subject them to various kinds of forced labor conscription that persists in a lot of Africa and parts of Asia until as late as World War II and sometimes afterward. And as a result of that, by the time you get to the 1960s, the forced settlement colonies 
are already showing much better mm-hmm. outcomes, particularly in terms of access to education and some of the health outcomes that generate longer life expectancy. And then with time, they also show advantages in economic development and mm-hmm. post-colonial democratization. So the book kind of takes a sweeping three-century analysis of two very different models of colonial domination and mm-hmm. control and traces the developmental legacies of each one first across British colonial space and then across Portuguese colonial space and then finally across French colonial space. So mm-hmm. it does this three times over three different colonial empires. Yeah, which is, again, very impressive because most studies have also usually focused on one single empire or on specific countries. So if I understand well your argument, then in colonial occupation setting, the institutions that are implemented are more repressive because they're facing this organized resistance to colonization. Correct. Um, They're more repressive and they remain repressive later into the 20th century. Yeah. And whereas in forced settlement colonies, so there is a different type of regime that is implemented. And at some point, the abolition of slavery mm-hmm. allows to grant political rights to em- emancipated slaves that are not granted to the people who live under colonial rule in occupation colonies. Correctly. First legal rights and then later political rights. So happens over a long a long period of time, but yes. What happened in the forced settlement colonies then? How did these legal rights become extended yeah. to the uh, formerly enslaved populations yeah. when this did not happen in the colonial occupation colonies? Exactly, that's an excellent question. So there are some important differences across colonizer, and so this is part of the reason why different chapters of the book deal with different mm-hmm. European colonizers, but I'll kind of briefly explain it first in British space and then in French space. So in British colonies, the abolition of slavery was closely linked to two things. One is the British Industrial Revolution. And the second thing was the British Reform Act of 1832. Mm -hmm. And what the Reform Act did in Britain itself was that it transferred economic dominance and political rights net away from aristocratic land owners and more toward capitalist business elites. So that's how things played out in Britain, starting in the 1830s, right? Mm -hmm. The same government that implements those reforms in Britain itself in 1832 abolishes slavery in British forced settlement colonies in 1833, And the logic of the two bills, the two pieces of legislation were kind of written in similar ways. Both were kind of a net transfer of rights, Mm -hmm. right, in ways that empowered over time business and commercial and industrializing elites, right? Now, granted, the British forced settlement colonies were not industrialized at the Mm -hmm. time, but what happens is that Freed slaves gain certain legal rights, so religious liberty was a key one, and I'll explain Mm. why that's important in a second. But also property rights, the right to own land and also pass it down to families. Religious liberty is hugely important in the British colonies because around this time, certain Protestant denominations were very active in the anti-slavery movement, number one, Mm -hmm. and two, by extension, 
they were very activist about extending educational access, mm -hmm. but also land rights to newly freed populations. And part of it was that they were trying to spread Christianity and they wanted people to be able to read the Bible. So yes, there were paternalistic reasons for doing mm -hmm. this, but this empowers people in a way that they had not been empowered before. And so over time, and it doesn't take very long, there, there's a huge demand for these goods that are mm -hmm. being provided by the abolitionists, many of whom were connected to specific Protestant denominations, right? Baptists, Methodists, Quakers, Presbyterians, etc. And so people were able to enroll their kids in school and sometimes go to Sunday schools where they would learn to read. And some of these communities were actively trying to create these new free villages where people gained access to land rights. Mm -hmm. And because the British economy, like in the metropole, is shifting away from the kind of aristocratic land ownership of like feudal estates toward a more industrialized economy, it also means that planters and plantation owners are losing out of this process. Mm. Right. So many plantations are becoming bankrupt between the 1830s and the 1860s in, in spaces like Jamaica, right? And as they become bankrupt, those estates are broken up and emancipated communities are able to buy and take control of small plots of land, right? This is a gradual process, but the data on this is pretty clear. There's a sharp decline in like the production and export of these plantation crops, right? Cocoa, coffee, etc. And what you get instead is small production of like food crops and also new export crops, things like bananas that are easier to produce on small mm. pieces of property as opposed to these large estates that were used to produce sugar, coffee, cocoa, etc. And so over time, this has an empowering effect, right? That's the British mm -hmm. space. Yeah, the possibility to build wealth for Precisely. emancipated slaves. Yeah, the French dynamic is similar But it's less about, not surprisingly, if you know the history of the French Revolution, it's less about religious liberty, <laughs> right? And much more about the French Republican notions of égalité and liberté and fraternité. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is the French Revolution itself puts this new cleavage in the French colonial space where, by and large, the planters who are white line up on the side of the the old ancien regime, the Bourbon elites and later Napoleon, and then the freed people of color and the emancipated slaves line up on the side of the Republicans who were pushing this message of égalité, liberté, fraternité that connects the Republican ideals of the French Revolution mm -hmm. to expanding citizenship rights, access to like schooling and secular public schools and voting rights and things like this. There's a much more revolutionary process. And again, this takes a very long time to play out because in France, there's a lot of back and forth between the 17 yeah, <laughs> original revolution, 89, and the end of the 19th century. And it takes about a hundred years before the Republicans have decisively won out But when that happens, it increases the political agency, but also the rights of the freed slaves who time and time again were an important part of the Republican mobilization in mm -hmm. French colonial space. 
And there is this tacit agreement between white French Republican elites and non-whites in the French Antilles, so Guadeloupe, Martinique, Réunion, where they enfranchise and empower freed slaves with the understanding that they're going to vote Republican in French parliamentary elections. Because in France, of course, there's sustained backlash to these reforms by aristocrats and supporters Mm -hmm. of different Bonapartist factions and different royalist factions. And so over the hundred years or so that it takes these struggles to play out, by the time you get to the beginning of the 20th century, the Third French Republic is fully consolidated based on secular notions of separation of church and Mm -hmm. state, voting rights, universal male suffrage. It was still very gendered in France and by extension in the colonies. But what that meant was that in those French colonies that remained under French rule for that entire period, you have parallel political developments with Mm -hmm. France. The problem with the colonies of occupation from the France's perspective was that while a lot of this revolutionary upheaval was going on in France, as I mentioned, freed slaves and ex-slaves and people of color tended to support the Republican side in the revolution. But in Algeria, there were indigenous Arab Muslim revolts against white French colonial settlers during this time period. And because of that dynamic, the French government instituted a set of series of laws and Mm -hmm. policies that was set up to exclude not just indigenous populations of any ethnicity, but also Muslims. And you see a lot of the consequences of this even in in post-colonial France today, right? And because the citizenship laws in Algeria were written in ways that included as examples, any European settler from any nationality because of skin color, but also North African Jews, while they excluded Arabs and Muslims who were the majority of the population. And in Senegal, as an example, the citizenship laws included people living in towns that were under French rule already during the 1848 revolution. So some black Senegalese Mm -hmm. got citizenship rights, but most didn't. Mm-hmm. And certainly any space that was colonized after 1848, because of indigenous resistance to the expansion of French rule, indigenous populations were just excluded after that. And it led to very different levels mm-hmm. of access to schooling and voting rights and political rights and things like that. So the specifics differ by colonizer. And I talk about Portugal and Portuguese colonies in the book, too, that another variation. But just for simplicity and time, I'll focus mostly on the British and French experiences. So, and yeah, it's fascinating to hear because, as you're saying in the French case, as slavery is being abolished mm-hmm. in the Caribbean colonies, mm-hmm. as people gain access to legal rights and later mm-hmm. political mm-hmm. rights, colonization is very much ongoing in Africa. Yes, exactly. And so these yeah. two phenomena go hand in hand, and at the same time, obviously, understanding the political turmoil in France, a very yeah. complicated political setting yeah. at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it's, fun to it's, research because I, I learned almost as much about France itself as I did about the French colonies at the time. So, yeah, I think yeah. anyone working on the period of time, the French Revolution and Restoration and, and mm-hmm. Bonaparte, is, is it's fascinating, but also extremely confusing to learn in school. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that and so, makes total sense. Interestingly, those two processes going together also mean that people in the French Antilles mm-hmm. gain access to the exercise 
of politics, mm -hmm. learning about politics, access to education much earlier than people in the colonies, which yeah. also has important implications in terms of the developmental outcomes of, exactly. the, of the different countries. Exactly. Right? So the, the one glaring exception, which I haven't mentioned yet, is Haiti. Absolutely. Which I, I talk, to talk about, about in this. the book. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was yeah. just I was going to ask you. Yeah. This is uh, Haiti is obviously a glaring exception yeah, to sure. the rule you yeah. just mentioned between because Haiti is is very much a forced settlement colony. Mm -hmm. It has a revolution in 1804, mm -hmm. I believe, mm -hmm. where that. slaves yeah. emancipate themselves. Mm -hmm. So what happened? Because today Haiti scores extremely low yeah, on yeah, all yeah. human development yeah. indexes. Is rigged by corruption, violence, all sorts of political problems. Not even talking about natural disasters, which are not yeah, yeah, tied yeah, to yeah, colonial yeah. rule, but still are yeah. pretty important. So what happened in Haiti yeah. that maybe either challenges your theory or just introduces a little bit more variation in sure. the in the story? So I go into that in quite a bit of detail in chapter seven, because it's a it's very important kind of exception to the general trends in pattern that I played out, that I explain in the earlier chapters. What happened in Haiti was basically that Haiti was punished by France mm -hmm. and all the other Atlantic powers for having the audacity to emancipate its own slave populations before Europeans were prepared to do this themselves. And so, as you mentioned, Josephine, the Haitian Revolution actually started in 1791. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, there were revolutions in other French Antillean colonies that started as early as 1789, more or less simultaneously with the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. The problem is that once Napoleon comes to power in France around 1800, Napoleon's wife came from a slave-owning Josephine, Josephine <laughs> planter family from the Caribbean, And for a number of reasons, he had a vested interest in trying to prevent Haiti, the success of the Haitian Revolution, but also in trying to reinstate slavery in the French colonies. The British were also, at the time, interestingly, they occupied some of the French colonies and reinstated slavery there as well. But when Haiti ultimately was able to gain its independence... France as a country had to deal with the fact that the white survivors of the Haitian Revolution pressed all kinds of claims against the French government and French insurance companies and banks for reimbursement for the destruction of their property during the Haitian Revolution. And there was no way that the French banking system And the French government could have sustained those claims without bankrupting or putting the entire French economy mm. in jeopardy. So France basically responded by refusing to recognize Haiti's independence, which meant that the Haitian government couldn't apply for loans, right? They couldn't legally get trade agreements with other countries. And all the other Atlantic powers basically played along with this because they had their own reasons. They were all su still supporting slavery either domestically or in their mm -hmm. colonies until the 1830s. So nothing fundamentally changed until the 1820s when one of the Haitian presidents entered into an agreement with the restored Bourbon regime in France mm -hmm. at the time. 
in which he agreed to pay an outrageous sum of money. It was 150 million French francs in 1825, mm-hmm. right? And there was no way they could pay that back. And everybody knew that at the time. And so what happened when Haiti began to default on those loans was that on the payments was that French banks stepped in to offer high interest loans. And over time, Haiti became heavily indebted in ways that kind of crippled the country's economy and also led to a lot of political crises. So there's a lot of infighting going on in Haiti. The U.S., for its own reasons, refused to recognize Haiti's independence when they recognized the independence of other Latin American countries, again, because it was threatening to American slaveholders Mm -hmm. to have an independent black republic so close, right? And so the United States doesn't actually recognize Haiti's independence until the U.S. Civil War in the 1860s, which is kind of shocking. And then when they do, they regularly begin to kind of enact a very neo-colonial extractive kind of policy regarding things like debt collection and repayment of loans that leads to the U.S. occupation of Haiti in 1915. This is kind of like a second colonialism, Mm -hmm. really, and a reinstatement of slavery in everything but name, right? So... The U.S. had a very kind of neo-colonial policy toward a lot of spaces in the Caribbean and Central America at this time in history. But the relationship with Haiti was particularly punitive and extractive because of racial issues in the United States itself. And so that further sets Haiti back. And so one of the things that comes out in my research in Chapter 7 of the book is that I'm able to show over a long period of time how the pathways of Haiti and the other French Antillean colonies, Guadeloupe, Martinique, but also Réunion in the Indian Ocean, diverge over time as the Antilles begin to reap the benefits of French citizenship, Mm -hmm. their black populations. And then Haiti becomes more and more impoverished and dysfunctional because of the combined impact of, of U.S. and French kind of neo-colonial exploitation. So it's a sad story, but that's mm-hmm. that's the big answer to your question. What What's interesting is that as a proportion of the population, the extent of slavery in Haiti was not significantly different from Jamaica or Guyana mm-hmm. or Barbados or Guadeloupe or Martinique. All of these places at one point in their history, more than 80% of the population was enslaved the colonial economy was more or less set up in the same way. And so you would expect without the reforms that were later impacted and acted in some of these spaces, similar kinds of outcomes over the long durée. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you get extensive reforms in the other French Antillean colonies that you don't get in Haiti leads to vast differences over time. I mean, in the book itself, the argument is a bit more nuanced because I also consider the role of domestic kind Mm -hmm. of political crises and things like that on top of the international dimension that I kind of outlined. But yeah, the differences today are are massive. Mm -hmm. I mean, today, Haiti's outcomes look more, much more similar to, you know, West, really impoverished West African countries like, like, say, Togo or Guinea than anywhere else in the Caribbean. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Oh, fascinating. Thank you so much. Well, maybe if we could just touch upon briefly the tremendous archive work you've been doing for this sure. uh, project. I wanted to ask you a little bit what kind of data you've been gathering to mm -hmm. tell that story. You know, maybe not going into the very specific yeah. detail of each archive fund, yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. it's really important to highlight the depth of the uh, qualitative work that Thank goes you. into yeah. building this very impressive argument. Thanks. So I relied quite heavily on European sources, archival sources, for a number of different reasons. And I can see pros and cons to doing that. But one of the reasons why I made that decision was that the archives based in Europe had records for lots of different colonies. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I went to an ex-colony, most of the time the records would just be about that one space. And there's some variation across the three empires that I focus on as far as how much data was kept and mm -hmm. the availability of it. And in general, I got the most archival data out of the British ex-colonies mm -hmm. and the least out of the Portuguese ex-colonies. But I relied quite heavily on colonial office reports and colonial office whatever the equivalent of a statistical yearbook is, right? <laughs> so in the British archives, they're just called blue books. And these were books that were records that were published by colonial governments every year. And they go back quite far. For some British colonies, they go back as far as like the 1820s. Mm -hmm. And the amount of information they have again, tends to increase over time. But even in the 19th century, they would at the very least have good data on things like imports and exports, revenues and expenditure, pretty good census data, and surprisingly detailed data on education and schooling and mm. school enrollments and things like that that gets better and more detailed over time. And you can use even a fairly simple analysis of that data to understand what the priorities were of different colonial governments, right? So if you can see expenditures on education as a percentage of the budget are much higher in some colonies than others, and expenditures on repressive things like police and prisons mm -hmm. are much higher in other colonies, then you start to look for other kinds of trends and ways in which this shows up in terms of other development outcomes, right? So school enrollments and things like that. So that's what I use kind of as my starting point. The French archives had very rich and interesting census data on citizenship, which I found quite interesting to look at because there was tremendous variation across the French colonies about how inclusive the citizenship laws were and how restrictive they were, right? So you can see from quite early on that the French Antillean colonies that went through this revolutionary process mm -hmm. simultaneously with France and therefore had more inclusive citizenship laws, by extension, also had much greater access to education and much greater access to voting rights and political representation. So just off the top of my head, an example that illustrates this in a shocking way was that in 1938, which was the last year before the outbreak of World War I, there were more primary school students enrolled in Martinique, Guadeloupe, and Réunion, which have tiny populations, 
than in all of French West Africa combined. Wow. Right, from Benin basically all the way to Senegal, including Mali, Niger, right, Burkina, Cote d'Ivoire, all Which is of those. Big countries, yes. Yeah. So you can see just how vast the differences were at a time when, uh, and what's interesting is that in the 30s, if you asked anybody in France, the dominant thinking would have been those territories are French and they're going to remain French forever. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until World War II and the Algerian War and the war in Indochina that French colonialism became quite destabilized, particularly in Africa, mm-hmm. right? But in the 30s, French control over those territories was not disputed by anybody, right? But yet the extent to which the populations in those territories had access to free secular education, right, in government schools, Mm -hmm. right, and voting rights and political representation was just vast. And there's interesting variations in Africa as well that I talk about in Chapter 7, which Mm -hmm. covers... In some detail, five different African countries. So, like, I start with Algeria and then work my way down Senegal, Gabon, Madagascar, and then finally the Comoros Islands. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, thank you very much. Well, maybe we can wrap up just by talking a little bit about the future or exciting mm-hmm. developments that you foresee in the field of development studies or political economy. Sure. Is there any anything that you're particularly excited about that you're planning to research in the future or you see mm-hmm. just a... Well, interesting developments because your your work really challenges existing explanation yeah. of the colonial legacies on development. So what do you see as a next step? Yeah. Well, one thing that I'm super excited about that I touch on a little bit in this book, but not in a really in-depth way, are subnational variations. So in a lot of countries, particularly larger countries, colonialism played out very differently in different kind of ethnic or geographic Mm -hmm. regions within the same country. Like you were saying in Senegal, for instance. Yeah. But you see this everywhere in Africa. You see this in India, right? You see this in Indonesia, Malaysia, these kinds of countries. So in the last 10 years or so, there have been some really cool papers that try to explain some of these subnational variations. And usually for a bunch of different reasons, economists... (laughs) <laughs> and social, sociologists are a little bit ahead of political scientists in this research. So that's partly why my work kind of engages quite seriously with work by sociologists mm-hmm. and development economists. But there's been a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, a growing amount of work by economists in this area. I'm particularly excited to see more work by political scientists because... Some of the outcomes we're interested in are different Mm -hmm. from what economists and even sociologists tend to do. And I'm also excited and optimistic about seeing more work on, more of this kind of work on Latin America. Mm -hmm. It's a part of the world that I'm quite fascinated by and have some personal and also family connections too. My wife is Colombian, so I've, I spent, I've spent a lot of time there, but also did a degree in Latin American studies before my poli-sci PhD. But for a number of different reasons, there's been very little scholarship historically on questions of race, colonialism, legacies of slavery mm-hmm. 
in Latin American countries, and that's just starting to grow. So I'm excited to see where it goes. I mean, there's a there are a number of reasons why those countries are just more complicated, mm-hmm. and there's a reason why there are many reasons why I didn't focus too much on that part of the world in this book. It is complicated by, in part, the fact that these are countries that mostly have been independent for about 200 years. So you would need to think quite critically about how to account for the myriad of political, economic, and developmental Mm -hmm. challenges that they've faced as independent countries, and also the role of U.S. and sometimes also European neo-colonial exploitation, right, that has impacted most of Latin America in quite significant ways. But there is some new and exciting scholarship on that that I'm really looking forward to see where that takes mm-hmm. us. So, yeah. Maybe a second book project. Maybe. I have a number of at least three different book ideas in my head right now. So it's just a matter of timing them and pacing myself accordingly. This book was a beast to write and <laughs> research, and it took an incredible amount of time and effort. So, yeah, I, I do hope to do more in the future. And yeah, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to talk about my research and share my ideas with you. So thank you yeah, for this. Thank you, um, Dr. Yeah, Willoughby, for joining us at the Global Stage Podcast. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to Global Stage, produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Listen to other episodes here or wherever you get your podcasts. Global Stage also can be found online at kellogg.nd.edu or by asking your smart speaker to play Global Stage. Global Stage.